0: You're listening to the Glenn Barrett Leadership Podcast. We know this will be an incredible resource for your life. So stay focused, listen up, and thanks for joining us. Change for growth. And I wanna give you some thoughts about about having a, a change culture, a change culture in winging it in order to be the church that God has called you to be. Audacious Church, we have celebrated 12 years of our local church, 12 years of Audacious Church being in existence. And uh, even though we are the same, the reality is, is we're not the same as what we were 12 years ago. We had a season where we were in quite a small building. For those of you who who maybe saw it, it could maybe legally seat 180 people, although every Sunday, I'm so glad the fire marshals didn't come, but uh, it was so small that you could stand on a chair and touch the roof. That's how low the chair the, the ceiling was. We started with one service and then we had two, and then we went to three and four and five. And uh, because we're on God TV, audacious conferences on God TV, people kind of knew of audacious being loud and vibrant and masses of people. And uh, every Sunday that I'm in church, Uh, If I'm not with a guest, I'm, I'm always on the door, shaking people by the hand. And in our last building, people would come to visit us, having seen us on TV or different things, or heard about us. And so many people would walk through the doors, they'd shake me by the hand. Oh, Pastor Glenn, nice to see you. And they'd step into our auditorium and go, is this it? That's what they would say. And what would happen is this, is uh, we, we would do music like we do music. It was always really loud and uh, really vibrant and really youthful and, you know, tribe called praise and jumping in the house of God and songs like that. And and, and in the midst of it, you know, people would say afterwards, wow, it's such a great, such a great anointing in, in the place. And I knew what they meant, but the reality was there was anointing, but really they were picking up on the brilliant atmosphere because when you got a lot of people squeezed into a room, really really small room it's really to create really easy to create atmosphere so so you could be speaking there was only like eight or 10 rows in the auditorium at the time. And if somebody at the back sneezed, it created a really great atmosphere in the room. You know, people, some would say, if you said amen from the back row, everybody would hear it and everybody would join in. And uh, and that was the way we did church. And then uh, I failed in my preparation. We failed. I'm not taking all the blame. The team should take the blame too. Mark Foster, Stuart, take the blame. We didn't prepare our church because we went from a, a building that could seat 100 into this, uh, like this, and eight and a half, or was it 10 metres to the roof, whatever it is, and, and all of a sudden everything changed, and the way we had to lead worship changed, and the way we would preach changed, everything had to change, we're the same, but we had to change. That in order to create atmosphere in a building like this, it's a different type of science, to the way you create atmosphere in a smaller venue. And so we're the same, but we had to change. Certainly in our pastoral care systems, uh, we, we had Greater Manchester broken up into five regions. And in the five regions, we would have volunteer couples pastoring the people in those five regions. And we had one volunteer couple pastoring a thousand people in their one region at one stage and they were doing their best and they weren't complaining but neither were they sleeping and neither were they having a good work life balance spiritual but everything was out of control and so we realized we had to change it and uh, I don't know what we've changed it to how many regions do we have now does anybody know 18 regions, and, uh, and now it's a, it's a lot easier for our, our regional pastors to, to kind of pastor the people through Greater Manchester because we're breaking it with the same, but everything necessitated that we change. There was a time when all roads led to Glenn and Sophie in decision-making and we ended up becoming a bottleneck uh, and we had to change. Because in in order for the church to continue to grow, to continue to thrive, to continue to increase, have greater influence, we had to learn that actually we can't be the one-stop shop. So now people come to ask me you know, about the minutiae, some of the systems, some of the mechanisms. I don't even know how many regions. I'm sure I should know how many regions we got for pastoral care. And maybe that's a fail on my point. But, but I'm trying to let you know that in actual fact, change is necessary for growth. And that sometimes what happens is this, is that sometimes we change because of growth. We have to. But I think it's far more astute of us as leaders to change in order to grow. And, and, and I think that when we, when we sort of put the, put the horse before the cart and we change in order to grow, then what we're doing in the process is we're creating the systems that we need to facilitate growth. I remember Bishop T.D. Jake saying to us a few years ago in Melbourne, he said this, he said that if your church database is not able to keep up with what's going on in your church world, you will stop growing because your database is not supporting the way you do your pastoral care. And he was really drilling into us this whole idea that you've got to change your structures and your systems in order to grow. Creating space for growth. Surely one of the best ways to do multi-site church or church planting is to budget in such a way that you create space in your budget so that when you step into a new location or a new site to do a multi-site or to do a new church plant, you already have, have the fat, you already have the space in order to do that. The thing I think is important for us to know is that Christianity at its very core has a theology of change at it. This is what we're all about. The Bible says, Romans 12, 2, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, which is why local church is the best mental health wellness place in society today. Because every day we're coming into the presence of the one who changes our heart, our spirit, our mind. When we're faithful preaching the Word of God, we are preaching to see people change their mind to have transformed thinking. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are transformed into His image day by day. So change is at the very core, it's at the very essence of our Christian faith. And the moment we decide not to change, the moment we get to a place of, of being weary because of change or for whatever reason we choose not to change, and we'll talk about a few problems in a moment's time, then we go counter what we're called into. God demands of us that we change. You know that, because you changed. You were a dead man walking. You were a dead woman walking. Where would you be? without the God who invaded your life in such a way that He brought change. The reason we lift our hands is because we changed. The reason we lift our hands is because we know even when we're walking through the shadow valley, we know that He's the God who won't leave us in the shadow valley. He's the God who will bring us through into a season of change. And so I'm here to encourage you in the midst of this winging it theme that change growth is so important. It is integral. And if we stop changing, we will stop growing. And if we stop growing, we will become a monument to what God did in historic generations. But God wants us to change in Jesus' name. Isaiah forty-three nineteen. See, I am doing a new thing. Don't you perceive it? Do you not perceive it? I am making a way, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new is here. Let me give you five things that I believe hinders change in our local church and even in our local business. And I wonder if any of these are relevant for you. Number one, nostalgia. Nostalgia is the enemy of change. Sometimes our heart is warmed more by the memory of the past than it is by the embers of a distant hope. And so what can tend to happen is this, is because change is difficult, we end up being caught in nostalgia. Now I get this. There are songs that when I sing them, I sing them out of a passionate love for God But I sing it because I remember where I was when God changed me. You bring out Jack Hayford's song, Majesty, Worship His Majesty. I'm gonna sing that from the depths. I'm gonna sing that like I've never sung my song before. Shout to the Lord. All the earth, let him sing. I mean, there there are songs that I love, Father Abraham. I mean, there are songs that that you start ripping on and I'm going to sing. But sometimes it's amazing how how you, I'm at a conference in May, and and I guarantee we're going to, we'll do a few old songs, a few hymns, which are still true today. But you watch, you watch the decibel level increase in the auditorium because we're singing it out of remembrance of what God did to us. And sometimes, we, myself included, have a theory that it was better then. It wasn't better then, it was just different then. Welcome to the good old days, folks. We're living in them right now. And I think the nostalgia can be something. I'm speaking this because I am nostalgic. You wouldn't think it, but I am. I hang on to stuff that I shouldn't hang on to. I hang on to stuff. My theory is this, stuff have feelings. I believe in the truth of the toy story. <laughs> my wife and I fell in love. We got engaged. She came to my house outside Sydney where we were packing our stuff to move to England. And, and, and we're going through this stuff. And, and, and Mum's bringing out all my boxes and dad and I'm going through the stuff. And I'm going, keep, keep keep. Meanwhile, my wife is over here in the keep box going throw, throw, throw. And I got to the end and I looked at my keep box and the keep box was empty. And I looked at the throw box. I said, what are you doing over here? And I walked over here and my wife had the audacity. I think we were engaged. We weren't married. uh, She had the audacity to put Batman... I had that Batman when I was four. Now I've seen that show set in Las Vegas. You know where they go into that shop and they bring in old toys and they get millions of dollars for these old toys. You know, my Batman was worth millions. Okay, when I was five, I bit off his ears and his nose and and different things like that. But what are you you doing? And, and, And one of our first proper arguments was over Batman. Stuff. I'm nostalgic over, over people. One of, one of my strengths and weaknesses is this, is that, and I don't know if you can be, but let me just throw it out there. I'm winging it. <laughs> Too loyal. Like I find that there are many times when I have more faith in people than they have in themselves, which actually sets me up for, for getting stab wounds in the back when I least expected it, and, and, and the propensity that I have is to hang on to relationships just a little bit too long. And you know it's too long when it becomes damaging, when it becomes an anchor, when it becomes something that holds you back. I think nostalgia is, is, can, can be a, a great problem. I think the second, second thing that hinders change is risk aversion. We mentioned it briefly last night. Now let me say this. If you know what it's like to have nothing then you know what it takes you to get something. If you know what it is to have no reputation, to have no ministry status, if you know what it is to have no money, to have no relationships, if you know what it took you to build those friendships, then when you get it, it's amazing how risk averse we can become because we look back and we realise what it took us to get what we have. Which is why we have this phenomenon globally where many ministers, the older many Christian leaders, the older they get, the more risk averse they become because it took me all these years to get to this place, the last thing I would want to do is try to jeopardise it in order to move forward. And so we've made mistakes in our church. We've gone through the diary at times and become risk averse with our diary and gone, we're too busy and taken stuff out of the diary. And then later gone, what are we doing? We had an influence into our church over a season where where... Where that that influence is saying, too busy, too much, too busy, too much, too busy, too much, too busy, too much. And it was like a dripping tap. And over a while, we started to believe the mantra, too busy, too much, too busy, too much. And we started to can things from our diary, take things out, take things out in order to have free diary. And and then all of a sudden, we found ourselves with so much space. I to think to myself, hang on a minute, I'm gonna die one day. I'm not propagating to be too busy. I'm just saying this, that sometimes we become risk-averse. I remember being a 15-year-old boy, being the youth leader in my dad's church, doing my GCSEs and my A-levels, and being out six nights a week, and doing my exams. I remember that. And I wonder why it is, I wonder why it is that sometimes the older we get, the more risk-averse we get to actually living lives that are busy, and then people say, are you tired? Listen, everybody's tired. The homeless are tired, the unemployed are tired, the rich are tired, the bored are tired, the Welsh are tired, the Scottish are tired, people in Lancashire are tired. We've got to make a decision, I think. What are we going to be tired doing? We're going to be tired playing Xbox or we're going to be tired changing a city? Friend, friend, please be aware of risk aversion. Please be aware of that. There, there was a a season for Audacious Conference where a group of us allowed our house to become houses to become the collateral in order for the conference to run. And over many years, and, and the the conference budget for Audacious escalated to like four hundred thousand or so. And so every every conference there was the, the risk that our houses would needed be needed and and different things. Like that, and then they reached a sticky point in our audacious church trustees meeting where th- that we had this conversation. The conversation pretty much went like this, and I'm trying to make a lengthy season um, succinct, where, where if, if audacious conference goes under, our pastors lose their house, and we can't do that. We're going to have to find a different arrangement. And the challenge for me was this: is that we're audacious in name, and risk aversion runs the risk of us being audacious in name but not audacious in nature. Friend, be aware of risk aversion. Be aware of that. I've got many illustrations I could give to you on that. The third thing that hinders change is our comfort zone. Just being comfortable. Which is why that verse is horrible, Joshua 3, 4, since you've never been this way before. And I think think Scripture is a theology of get out of your comfort zone. I mean, this is Jesus' teaching. He's teaching to the disciples, get out of your comfort zone. How do I know? Unless you eat my body and drink my blood. Get out of your comfort zone. Jesus was continually kind of defying what they thought a rabbi, a religious leader, should do. He shouldn't wash feet. Jesus was saying to them, unless you carry your cross, you can't be my disciple. That is so anti-2020 Christianity for some people. Where, 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 where the danger is, and not you because, because you are the converted and you get this, but the danger is an easy, cheap Christian faith. Speaking to somebody recently who spent, I think it was three years in a prison in a certain part of the world because they were a pastor and put in prison for preaching their faith. They ended up being rescued by an an American humanitarian organization and they went to a certain part of the United States and I'm not throwing the United States under the bus because we're all the same. But they went and and they discovered that these these, these suburban mums in their urban uh, minivans uh, would do football with the kids or whatever, and then drive to church on a Sunday for a convenient form of Christianity, and then not tell anyone about their faith through the week. And the narrative that came back from this person who had been persecuted and potentially was going to be martyred for their faith was this, is we went to jail for simply sharing the gospel. And yet in the West, we have this, this, this easy form of Christianity where, 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 where the, the narrative of carrying the cross. Pastor, that's why you're tired, carrying the cross. That's why there's another stab wound, carrying the cross. That's why Saturday night, two o'clock in the morning, you're still struggling with that message because it's carrying the cross. That's what God wants us to do. I think comfort zone becomes this, this place that we've just got to get out of. Fourthly, fourthly, the thing that hinders change is weariness because change is tiring. Somebody made a comment to me before. said, Glenn, did you realize it's been raining since September? <laughs> I didn't even think about it. I thought, that's why I'm tired. <laughs> haven't seen the sun for such a long time. You know, you feel like kind of getting in a canoe to paddle to church or to the office, office these days. And the thing is this, is that, is that the storms that accompany change can be tiring. Oh, we've got to change again. We're going to add another service again. We're going to change our system again. Can I just say for any elders, any trustees, any team members in church life, that in order to be a church that grows, change is necessary. God wants us to be a people who learn how to change. Never should we say to our pastors, the way, this is not the way we usually do it. Because as Mr. Twain once said, tradition is not wearing your grandfather's hat, it's buying a new one like he did. Change is here to stay. I believe we should get change to be our mantra. And surely one of, our, one of our challenges in pastoring and leading is actually agitating the church out of its comfort zone into something new. And, and I think a lot of relational trust needs to, needs to happen within that. And there's, there's lots of things on that. I think the fifth thing that hinders change is fear. Fear of reputation, fear of being wrong, fear of what people will think, fear of what people will say. And so we end up in a place of, of indecision, Not moving forward, where the Bible says a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. And I've found this, that in any area of indecision in my life, it creates instability in a lot of areas of my life. And sometimes I'm busy trying to fix up why this is unstable here and why is this not working here and why is that working over there and that's the fruit of indecision in my life and sometimes making a decision and can I be so bold as to say even making the wrong decision is sometimes better than making no decision because at least if you make the wrong decision if you've got the collateral and the buy in your people you can say, hey, you know what? 2 p.m. service on a Sunday, not even the Holy Spirit wants to come. We're going to cancel it. (laughs) I didn't get any emails of complaint on that one. Thank God. So let me give you a few thoughts then on, on planning change. Planning change. How do you plan change? A few thoughts on this. The first thing is this, is vision. Vision illuminates the size of change. Vision illuminates the size of change. Vision being defined as a clear image of a preferable future. 12 years ago, we come into Manchester and God gives us a vision to be a church that stops the traffic. Numerically so large that we create traffic jams on weekends. Now, none of us like traffic jams, but the picture in our mind was this. is So many people going to church that it creates traffic issues. And we realised the vision illuminated the size of change that we needed to continually go on in order to be the type of church that influences the city in such a way that we create traffic jams across our great city. So when we started 12 years ago, we were here. Our vision was over there. And here we are 12 years into our journey and we're here And the vision is over there. In fact, it's really irritating. Because with every step we take, every big decision we make, it's amazing how it doesn't matter we're 12 years in, we're 15, we're 20 years in. Wherever we go, we're going to be here and the vision is over there. Because the Bible says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. And, and as you step, he illuminates more. And as He steps, you, as you step, he illuminates more. So people say, are you happy with your church? It, that's a loaded question with too many answers. I live in constant frustration and I know it's wrong. There are moments when you just got to pinch yourself and stop and go, God, wow, you are good. But then the leadership head goes, but we want to be over there. I mean this building's brilliant, but we've been in here seven years. It's a shed with curtains. Last Sunday the curtain over there, side of stage, fell down. I mean I mean I mean this thing, this thing behind the surface is here. But I want to be there so we're going to build this new cathedral. We are going to build this new cathedral in Jesus' name. And and when we do the opening kind of four or five days, because you never just do an opening day. You should have four or five, at least a a week of partying to celebrate what God has done. And then we're going to open a new building and we're going to find a new building. We're going to be here. But we want to be over there. And I'll tell you what there will be. All of our locations. They want a building too. And you find that as a leader, you're always struggling between here and there. Surely the worst verse in the Bible. They died not having received that, which was promised. Because every time Abraham was here, he wanted to be there. And Joshua was here and he wanted to be there, which necessitates we grow or We get bitter and miserable because you begin to realise the promises for me are not just for me. They're for the generations to follow. (laughs) Change necessitates growth. Growth necessitates change. And I think that this vision journey is so frustrating. So in planning change, be aware that your vision illuminates the size of change. Somebody said recently, Glenn, must be great having a big church. I'm like, compared to what? Because on Wednesday night, 75,000 peasants were at Old Trafford, worshiping the Red Devil. And last night, 1975, we're playing at the arena, like 300 yards up the road here, and there were 22,000 people in there. Must be great having a big church compared to what? I mean, we have church name on this, but any gathering of people really is a community of people who've come to worship something and believe something, vision illuminates the size of change. Secondly, problems illuminate the need for change. Leaders, if you tolerate problems, then you are compounding the problem. I say to our team all the time, I say to all our staff all the time, I say, hey guys, If there are things that are happening in our systems, in the way we operate that frustrate you, don't put up with the frustration. Be a change agent. Help us to change the things that are not working because we don't have full visibility over most things in the life of our church. It's so important. Theodore Rubin, he said this, the impossible isn't a problem. The problem is not that there are problems that seem impossible. The problem is expecting otherwise and thinking that having problems is a problem. A problem is merely an environment where the impossible is done. Leaders, I wanna encourage you this morning. Don't allow your problems to box you in. Go to God and say to God, God, in the midst of this problem, I know there is a seed of the impossible becoming possible. we got to get on our knees and pray in the face of problems. And we got to see in God. we got to see something in God in the midst of those problems. The most genius things that have happened in audacious church presented themselves as a major problem. And yet someone, somewhere in the life of that church, saw the seed of possibility within it in Jesus' Name. The third thing is this, is people, people. People illuminate the challenge of change because it's one thing you changing your mind and agreeing to change. But it is another thing to get the major constituents in your church, your church family to change. That is a challenge. Let me throw this out there. I think Mark touched on it last night. You will never have the magical right people to do what you need to do. You're just gonna have people. I think that sometimes the excuse of I don't have the right people causes us not to step out in faith, not to do. Listen, I think the reality is this, is the majority of us know what it's like to take a risk and see people rise. And I think, you know, we made a decision 12 years ago. We are always going to make an heroic ask of our people. When it comes to our offerings, when it comes to our building plans, when it comes to mission, when it comes to pioneering, we're not going to go to the lowest common denominator. We're going to make an heroic ask. And you know something? i got to be honest. I have been blown away. We have been blown away, shocked, amazed, time and time again. Because when the magical right people weren't there, the right people were there, we just had to make the ask. And it was amazing to see people come to a new, new level and dimension. I think that within this this concept of of the challenge of change and people, uh, I, I I wanna address the issue for a moment of worldview, if I can. Worldview. For many years, I used to teach that vision is the most important thing. I learned last year that vision is not the most important thing. The most important thing is worldview. Because the way a person sees their world, the person's worldview determines how they interpret the vision you put in front of them. James Sire, he wrote a book called The Universe Next Door. And in The Universe Next Door, he asks eight things. He talks about eight things that help you to determine a person's worldview. But he talks here about God. He talks about reality. He talks about humanity. He talks about forever. Forever. He talks about knowledge. He talks about absolutes. He talks about history. And eighthly, he talks about a person's personal um, decisions that they're making in life. And from these eight categories, he says this, that the way a person answers these eight things, which we haven't got time to get into, defines and describes a person's worldview. Last year, I put it to the test sent our team into one of our high schools in Manchester, uh, a Church of England school, and we asked, we, we surveyed 180 students on these eight questions, on these eight principles. And from that, we were able to identify what the worldview was of this working class community in Oldham, Greater Manchester. And see, what can tend to happen is this, is that we as leaders can pray and get a vision from God and we stand up and declare a vision to people whose worldview is so dramatically different to our worldview that there's little reason, there's little wonder why they take this magnificent vision of a church that stops the traffic and and boil it down to something that was never meant to be. Our challenge in terms of, with people, the challenge of change being people is this: is that we have to uh, help people to see their world differently, change the worldview, introduce a magnificent vision, and watch people rise. Fourthly, is this the fourth? The fourth uh, key for change, the fir- fourth thing for planning change, is this: is systems. And systems illuminate. Your mechanism for change. Your mechanism for change. Uh, Mark, come and join me up on stage. One of the most important people in our church, hands down, is this guy here, Pastor Mark. Mark, Mark, pastors our staff. Mark is our operations pastor. And so it's one thing us preaching to change worldview and presenting a vision. But unless this guy here can help us create the mechanisms that go along with that, then we'll never see the vision come to pass and we'll never change. So Mark, why don't you just share us with us just for a few moments on some of the principles for these systems, these mechanisms.
1: Systems is such a big word. And there's some people here right now will be going, oh, systems. But we've all used systems already today. Who chose what they want for breakfast in the restaurant this morning? You used a food choice system, commonly known as a menu. A system helps you get what you want. It helps you get towards the goal. A good system will shorten the road from where you are and where you want to go. A bad system will make it look like spaghetti. But a system's not a scary thing. A system's a procedure that gets it done. I'm going to use two people to show you how beautifully simple systems can be. Because a system can be simple or it can be complex. It can be massive or it can be minute. You see, we've got a brilliant lady on our staff, uh, on, on staff called Elaine. And she's in charge of our hospitality department. She gets the ingredients, she shows a picture, and then she turns dummies like me into people who can make things like that. That's a system. But we also have incredibly complex systems like our budget system. If it wasn't for Dave, our CFO, we would be drowning. We have a budget system that says we can spend X on this and Y on this. It's very rigid, but it's so freeing. It brings so much peace. I was employed by a company once that we had a day called Black Friday. You all love Black Friday when it's Amazon. Black Friday involved getting 70 of the staff off staff in one day. The system they chose to do that was to go through everybody's name, alphabetically, starting at 9 o'clock in the morning. And you went into the office and found out if you had a job or not. I was fourth last. Not a great system, but the financial system said they'd spent too much on wages. We've never had a problem like that here. Never. Because Dave runs this brilliant system that says we can spend X on Y and five on this and ten on that. It's so freeing and a system should help you as a leader be free to do what you need to do we're not worried about things about finance it's not a problem because there's a system in place leadership development just like last night mark's point was brilliant he had his three then he had his 12 then 70 that was jesus's leadership development system have a go So what system do you need? You might think, I don't do systems. Embrace somebody who can see it. It's from the simplest thing of a picture all the way through to a budget. And you can set that up tomorrow. Just find somebody who loves it and let them fly.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. So systems illuminate your mechanism for change. And the last thing is this, and Mark's already touched on it. Finances illuminate your propensity to change. Finances illuminate your propensity to change. The amount of times I've heard people say this, say, if I had the money, I would do this. Let me pose this as a thought. If you had a God who owned the cattle on a thousand hills, if you had a God who said to you, I will give you the power to create wealth, If you had a God who for Him nothing is impossible and nothing is too hard, if you had a God who could create a universe in six days, if you had a God who loved you so much, who promised to provide for you for the vision, if you had that kind of God, what would you do? See, I want to encourage you pastors, leaders, when you go home, just get out a blank piece of paper and say this. If we could start again, without all the baggage, what would we do? I said to our senior team just last week, Sophie and I were talking with them, we were talking together, and I said this, I am sick and tired of people not owning their baggage. We use our baggage, or what we do is we blame somebody else for our baggage, but if we just own our baggage... And just say, okay, that's what I went through. It's my baggage. I'm going to deal with it. Now, if I had a God who owned the cattle on a thousand hills, who could do all things, who could provide the provision for the vision, what would I do? You see, finance illuminates your propensity to change. And so five things. Number one, Vision illuminates the size of change. Number two, problems illuminate the need for change. Number three, people illuminate the challenge of change. Number four, systems illuminate your mechanism for change. And number five, finance illuminates your propensity to change. Thank you for listening to this Glenn Barrett Leadership Podcast. For more information, visit us online at audaciouschurch.com.